Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Autumn Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Amy Ziegert, a Davies Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of her talk is Decoding Cyber Threats, and it was recorded on October 20th, 2015. I want to thank all of you um, for all that you do for Hoover. I've had the great honor of leading the National Security Affairs Fellows Program. They are extraordinary men and women from all the different services in the State Department. And now we're at the forefront of building a cyber policy program. And it's thanks to all of the support that you give us that we're able to do the things that we do. So just to give you a quick overview, uh, in the past two years, we've uh, started a cyber boot camp for senior congressional staff. That's already paid dividends in how they're thinking about legislation or the legislation they shouldn't create on Capitol Hill. Just last week, Senator McCain came, as you probably know. He's the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. He's very engaged in cyber deterrence. He's asking tough questions. And we had a, a wonderful series of sessions with him and member leaders from industry and academic experts from across the university. Uh, and uh, we're looking forward to working closely with United States Cyber Command. We're hosting a joint conference with them to bring the best minds we can together to make progress on cyber threats. So I want to thank you all for making all that possible. Now, I don't need to tell this crowd that cyber threats are everywhere. We feel them daily, and they've become personal for all of us. Just want to get a show of hands. Raise your hand if you've had to get a new credit card in the past year because your credit card, look around the room, keep your hands up for a second, right? Because of a breach or a suspected breach, right? Keep your hands up for a second. Raise your hand if you are part of Anthem Health Insurance before January 2015, where you were one of 80 million Americans whose medical information may have been breached. Now raise your hand if you've had a government job in the past 15 years or a security clearance, right? Yeah. Okay, so you may have been part of the Office of Personnel Management breach, 22 plus million records, including records for people getting the highest classified jobs in government. If you're particularly unlucky, and you're like me, you hit the trifecta, right, with all three of those things. So we know that cyber threats are here, but there's a lot of confusion about what the cyber landscape looks like. And so what I want to do today is cover three things what we should know, what we do know, what we don't know. What we should know about cyber threats, lessons from history about the national security threat landscape writ large. What we do know about cyber threats, and in particular the ways in which they're different from other national security threats that we confront. And what we don't know, perhaps the most important part. Right? Where are there questions in which there is either rampant confusion, rampant disagreement, or both. So that's what I want to cover this morning. Let me start with what we should know from history about our threat environment. The threat environment the United States confronts today is unprecedented. Now, I'm aware that policymakers always feel like the threat environment they confront is unprecedented, that we've never been here before. But this time, it's really true. During the Cold War, we know that we face the grave prospect of nuclear Armageddon. But in terms of the threat landscape, it was a much more straightforward time. We knew that we had one principal adversary, 
the Soviet Union. We knew who it was. We knew where it was. It had territory on a map. Its soldiers wore uniforms. We knew about their capabilities and their intentions. After all, they helped us in sometimes by parading their missiles through Red Square. Now, compare that to the threat landscape of today. It's more crowded, it's more uncertain, and it's more dynamic than ever before. Now, the Director of National Intelligence, Jim Clapper, has been in the intelligence business for more than 50 years. And he says repeatedly that this is the most complex threat environment he's ever seen in his lifetime of service in the intelligence community. The threat environment we know is filled with rising states like China, declining states like Russia, make no mistake, Russia is a gas station masquerading as a state. Weak states, failed states, rogue states like North Korea, non-state actors like ISIS or Anonymous, the hacking group, transnational threats like Ebola, global pandemics, global climate change. It's a crowded threat environment today. There are two big differences with this threat environment. One is that for the first time, one of the world's major powers will be a developing country, China. Gary Roughhead spoke a lot about China last night. The second major difference is that for the first time, we live in a dramatically asymmetric threat environment, where great powers like the United States are threatened by weak states or non-governmental uh, actors or bands of individuals that can wage disproportionate war or inflict disproportionate damage and disruption on our society, and that's new. But it gets worse than that because the threat landscape is also changing faster than it has before, and velocity matters in national security. Every year, the Director of National Intelligence issues a threat assessment where he runs down the list of dangers confronting the United States. And these are public. You can get them online. You can hack them online. Right? They're publicly accessible. In 2007, cybersecurity didn't make it into the threat assessment. Not one word. In the 2007, not that long ago, 2007 threat assessment, not one word devoted to cybersecurity. In 2009, Cyber threats were so far down the list, they were on page 38 of 45 pages of the threat assessment, just below drug trafficking in West Africa. Right. Cyber threats didn't jump to the top of the threat list until 2012, right, just three years ago. And now it's been cyber attack du jour, if you read the newspaper. I just took a quick look at what kinds of cyber breaches we've had in the United States in the past 12 months alone, just the past year. Here's a partial list. Sony, disruptive, destructive, coercive. Right? Attributed to the government of North Korea, the Sony hack destroyed hundreds of computers and servers, wiping the data from them entirely. It was massively disruptive to one of our great movie studios, revealing trade secrets, right? private emails that led the CEO to resign, took Sony off the grid for several days, uh, and it was coercive, darkly threatening 9-11 style violence in movie theaters if the studio went ahead with its release of the movie, The Interview, right? depicting the assassination of North Korea's leader. So the Sony attack. The Anthem attack, which I already alluded to, 80 million users' medical data breached. The OPM hack. 
And of course, there is the drip, drip, drip of the theft of intellectual property. The uh, former director of the National Security Agency, Mike McConnell, said earlier this year in a speech, this is what he said in public, and I quote, the Chinese have penetrated every major corporation of any consequence in the United States. Every major corporation of any consequence in the United States. And of course, we know from the report of CrowdStrike just in the past couple days that despite Xi Jinping's assurances with President Obama when he visited the United States that the Chinese have not stopped their efforts to steal massive amounts of US intellectual property. So this is just in the past year. Speed is a challenge in the threat landscape, perhaps our biggest challenge. Threats are changing and moving at the speed of cyber, and our responses are moving at the speed of government. <laughs> Let me turn to what we do know. That's what we should know about the threat landscape of the past and how it compares to the present. What we do know. The cyber threat that we face today is very different than traditional national security threats we've confronted. And I want to just focus, there are many differences, but let me just focus on three. The first is that the United States is simultaneously the most powerful actor in cyberspace and the most vulnerable actor in cyberspace. Now, the military likes to talk of domains, the land domain, the sea domain, the air domain. I see our National Security Affairs fellows in the back. The Marine is nodding. Yes, the land domain. Yeah. Um, and in those domains, those with the best capabilities are the most powerful. Right? That's not true in cyber. We have the best offensive cyber capabilities of any actor in the world, and we're also the most vulnerable nation because we're the most connected nation. We rely on digital networks for everything, for our economy, for our society, for our government, for our military, for our educational institutions. Now, when North Korea hacked Sony, it was a national incident in this country. But when North Korea's internet went down in what looked like a US response, it was not so major. Now, why would that be? Because in a country as poor and isolated and disconnected as North Korea, where a third of the children in that country are malnourished, where only 10% of the population has cell phones, and where the power is so bad they use those cell phones at night as lights, right? in a country that poor and disconnected, shutting down the internet doesn't shut down much. So in the United States, the source of our strength, our economic dynamism, our military, our society, are also sources of weakness. That's different in cyber than other domains. The second major difference, the government can't go it alone in cyberspace. Now, in every other realm, we think about the government is the legitimate monopoly provider of security. Right? If we want safe streets in our neighborhood, we call the police. It's the legitimate monopoly provider of security in our neighborhoods. If we want a safe country, we bolster our military. But in cyber, the government can't go it alone because, as you know, 85% of our critical infrastructure, our power grids, our financial systems, 85% owned and operated by the private sector. Right? So the government has to work hand in hand with industry. And yet we face this world where, post Snowden, there's a trust deficit between government and industry, and that trust deficit is real. 
and we feel it here in Silicon Valley in a very real way. And we also have divergent incentives. Right? Corporations today are more global than they were before, which means they have to engender the trust of a global consumer base. 64% of Apple's revenues are generated from overseas. Most of Apple's customers are not American. And so they have to think about their global customer base. The incentives between Apple and the government diverge. And that's one of the reasons we've seen this bitter encryption fight between Apple and the National Security Agency and the, F and the FBI about encrypted devices. So we have different incentives, a trust deficit. The government and industry have to collaborate and cooperate, but it's a very difficult problem to work. Third big difference between traditional national security threats and cyber threats. The attack surface in cyber is huge and growing. Now, one former military official described the cyber threat landscape to me this way. He said, Amy, imagine that you're walking through on a street in cyberspace, and the street runs through the best and worst parts of town all at the same time. And people in this virtual world do all the same things they do in the physical world. They go to the movies, they go to the bank, they visit their doctor, they see their friends. But they're also robbing banks, they're getting mugged, they're committing crimes. The good guys and the bad guys in cyberspace are all connected. There are no safe neighborhoods in cyberspace. And the reason there are no safe neighborhoods in cyberspace is that the internet wasn't designed that way. It wasn't designed to be secure. It was designed to be open and trusted. It was originally created in part here at Stanford so that a handful of researchers at a handful of universities could share their data with each other. Right? The first transmission was between UCLA and Stanford on what was then called the ARPANET, the precursor for the internet. Only now there aren't just a handful of university researchers on the internet, 40% of the world is on the internet. And then there's the growing internet of things. We're moving to a world where we have smart appliances that turn themselves on when the power rates are low, or I hope remind us to get milk when we're running low. We're moving to driverless cars. As the parent of two teens, I can tell you not soon enough to driverless cars. <laughs> we're moving to a world of implantable medical devices where your devices will tell your information to your doctor seamlessly. And this is an incredible world that we're in, the internet of things but it has a dark side. And that dark side is called vulnerability because anything you have that's connected, anything you have that is smart is vulnerable. The attack surface is huge. There is always a weakness that nobody's ever heard of. And I talk to a lot of computer scientists and technologists and they, they differ about exactly what the numbers are, but roughly they say that if you think about computer code, for every 2,500 lines of code or 1,000 lines of code, something like that, for every 2,500 lines of code, there's a vulnerability. Not maliciously put there, just a mistake, an oversight, a weakness in the code that the coder never realized when they were writing the code. So if you think about this as a chain link fence, right? every 2,500 links in the chain link fence, there's a missing link or a weak link. And the cyber bad guys are out there. I always liken them to the velociraptors in the movie Jurassic Park. Not the recent movie, although those are good velociraptors, but the original one, where they're constantly testing the fence. Right? Remember them? Cyber bad guys are out there, like those velociraptors, testing the fence every day, looking for that weak link or that missing link so they can get through. 
one in every 2,500 lines of code. And all these wonderful devices that we love and rely on for our daily lives are built on a foundation of code. So I have an Android phone. My Android phone has 12 million lines of code that make it run. Right? For you math wizards in the room, you've already figured out that's 4,800 vulnerabilities sitting in that Android phone. Your Windows operating system, 40 million lines of code. Attack vectors are everywhere. Mike Hayden came uh, to speak uh, last year to talk about Edward Snowden, actually. But he, when he was here, he told the story of when he went to get a new iPhone. And he went with his wife to a Washington, D.C. area Apple store. And he said the genius, he said, you know, the teen from the genius bar walked over. And so Michael Hayden, right, former CIA director, former director of the National Security Agency, knows a thing or two about cyber threats. And uh, the, the guy from the Apple Genius Bar comes and starts excitedly telling Mike Hayden about the 400,000 apps that he can download into his, new cyber, into his new Apple phone. So Hayden turns to his wife and he says, I don't think he knows who I am. He said, this guy's just told me about 400,000 attack vectors into my phone. Now, recently, the Sunday New York Times had a feature about a new toy. I don't know if you all read it, called Hello Barbie. Hello Barbie is a talking Barbie doll and uses artificial intelligence. So if, and it's going to be on sale in stores next month for $75, right? If you push on Hello Barbie's belt buckle, there's a microphone that records your child's voice. And they use artificial intelligence and machine learning to actually have a responsive conversation based on what your child says. So if your child says, I hate my brother, Hello Barbie can actually remember the name of the brother and have a conversation back and forth with your child. And by the way, they store the data, the recorded voice of your child, in the cloud for up to two years. What could possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> with a cloud-based artificial intelligence system that is in a toy that you put into the hands of a child and where your child's data is stored for up to two years. You can imagine Hello Barbie asking your child, not that hard to do, are your parents home? What's the garage pin number? What's your mom's social security number? We have lots of consumer devices increasingly that are built for all sorts of different things, but not with security in mind. If you may recall, there was a Wired magazine story about the recall of 1.4 million cars because researchers showed that they could hack into the uh, entertainment system and control the car, right? Cut the transmission, cut the brakes, drive the car into a ditch. I believe it is the first time that there's been a massive recall based on a potential adversary, right? Not a mechanical failure. So protections aren't built into our devices because we consumers don't demand it. We want speed and convenience. As one of my friends in government says, we'd rather be connected than protected. The attack surface is huge, right? Beware of hello Barbie. Let me turn to what we don't know. Three key questions where there's rampant confusion or disagreement or both. And I have to say, Bob Oster likes to send these wonderful jokes periodically about military humor, which I very much appreciate. And there's one that he emailed me that I thought really captured this situation very well. It, and the joke is, having lost sight of our objectives, we need to redouble our efforts. 
And that, I think, captures a lot of the challenges in this space. So let me go through the three key questions. The first is, what's an attack that constitutes a threat to US national security? We don't know the answer to this question. As you recall, during the Sony hack, President Obama referred to it as an act of cyber vandalism. John McCain took issue with that and called it a cyber act of war. Now, the Target and Home Depot breaches were attacks for Target and Home Depot, but were they threats to US national security? Probably not. The problem here is that both the words cyber and attack are very problematic concepts. Cyber defines things only by their common mode of execution through digital networks and systems. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Cyber includes everything from petty criminals who want to steal your credit card to nation states that want to disable our military systems. It's equivalent to, to my saying, you know, there's a new class of threats called emerging vehicle-borne threats. And they're all defined by their common mode of execution, right, which is vehicles. And that will include everything from terrorists using truck bombs to invasions with tanks, car theft, and road rage, right? You'd say that makes no sense at all, but that's essentially what we've done analytically by lumping everything together as a cyber threat. That's the word cyber. The word attack is also problematic. In the physical world, we talk about robberies. We don't talk about robbery attacks. We talk about espionage or spying. We don't talk about spying attacks, but in cyber, they're all called attacks. Now, why does this matter? Words matter not just because academics think they do, right, and we're nitpicky, which we are, right? Words matter because they shape public expectations of what the government should do, right? When you say the word attack, it implies that our government has the responsibility to do something about it. And yet we're still in our infancy of actually defining and shaping and understanding what is the cyber attack spectrum that we're dealing with here. So that's question number one. What's an attack that's a threat to US national security? Question number two, how serious a threat are Cheeto-eating teen hackers? We are told to be afraid of everybody. I know I've, been, I, I've scared you with Hello Barbie, and I've talked about how the attack surface is huge, but the attacker surface is not nearly as large as we think it is. So former FBI Director Bob Mueller, who's come to Hoover many times in the past couple of years, loves to tell the story of Mafia Boy. Now, Mafia Boy is a, an, uh, an incident in 2000 where there was a massive denial of service attack here in the Bay Area. It was, it was one of the early ones. And uh, this attack hit eBay, E-Trade, and Yahoo, which at the time was the biggest search engine in the world. Talk about how fast things change. Now, the FBI investigated this denial of service attack, and they found out, no kidding, the perpetrator was a 15-year-old kid who went by the handle Mafia Boy. And when they finally nabbed him, he was having a sleepover with his friends, eating junk food late at night and watching the movie Goodfellas. Right? There's a lot of talk about teen hackers like Mafia Boy, but these are not nearly the most serious threats that we confront as a nation. There's a lot of talk in the press, too, about sophisticated attacks that technical experts will tell you aren't so sophisticated after all, but maybe height to excuse bad security. 
One of my technology friends says, when a company reveals it was the victim of an advanced persistent threat, advanced just means we didn't think of it, and persistent means we can't get rid of it. Now, evidence suggests that the most serious threats to the United States on a national security level come from states, and they come from four states in particular, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, right? Four states. Intellectual property theft, we know, aided, abetted, directed by China, with Russia a close second. The Sony hack attributed to the government of North Korea, much more sophisticated capabilities than officials had previously believed. The most damaging attacks abroad committed by the government of Iran in the Saudi Aramco attack, which destroyed 30,000 computers. Iran also implicated in attacks here in the US on financial institutions and other places. And uh, to be sure, the most sophisticated cyber attack that's been publicly revealed, the Stuxnet attack on Iran's nuclear centrifuges is reported to have been conducted by a combination of the United States and Israel. So the attack surface may be huge, but the attacker surface is not nearly so large as we might think, four states, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. The last and perhaps toughest question is, is cyber deterrence possible? This is a question we talked a lot with Senator McCain about last week. It was the subject of his latest hearing. It's the subject of the cyber uh, conference that we're going to bring in academic experts to grapple with with US Cyber Command later this year. The essence of deterrence, of course, is threatening an adversary. If you do that, you will regret it, right? You'll be punished or the cost will outweigh the benefits of your action. And so you threaten, and that threat is what prevents your adversary from taking that unwanted step in the first place. Now, all parents are deterrence experts, right? We know this. If you hit your brother, fill in the blank, right? You'll lose dessert or TV or whatever it may be, right? We practice deterrence every day. For deterrence to work, you have to be able to credibly threaten some kind of punishment. And in order to credibly threaten some kind of punishment, you have to be able to identify the culprit. Attribution is critical. Deterrence can't work if you can't attribute who's behind an attack. Knowing who you're dealing with makes all the difference in the world. Now, since Gary Ruffhead talked a lot about the Navy last night, I thought I'd share with you an example of just how important it is to know who you're dealing with from the Navy. So here's how it goes. This is reported to have been uh, conducted, this negotiation on the radios uh, at sea. Negotiator number one says, we are on a collision course. You're instructed to change your course 10 degrees starboard. Negotiator number two, we instruct you to change your course 10 degrees port. Negotiator number one says, we reiterate, change your course 10 degrees starboard immediately. Negotiator number two, we will not change course. You must immediately change your course 10 degrees port. Negotiator number one, this is a fully armed Navy vessel. Change course now. Negotiator number two, this is a lighthouse. Your move. <laughs> Makes the point that you have to know who you're dealing with if you want to punish. 
Now, in cyberspace, attribution is often slow, and it's hard, and it's probably going to get harder. Finding out who's responsible for an attack is sometimes fast, but not always. Even if you can trace the attack to a server or a computer, there's the question of who's actually typing behind the keyboard and what that person's relationship is to a foreign government or an organization. Much harder to figure out. And speed matters. Attributing quickly is much more important than I think many in government have suggested publicly for deterrence to work well. If you can't attribute quickly, you can't punish quickly. And if you can't punish quickly, deterrence becomes much more hollow. Now, last March, Admiral Rogers, the head of US Cyber Command, testified before Congress that deterrence wasn't deterring very much. We know this, right? But he argued that what we needed to do was go more on the offensive to get effective deterrence. But cyber deterrence is not just about going on offense. It's about timing. Right? Fast attribution is probably going to get more difficult in the future, not less. I think if we look back 10 years from now on today, we'll think of today as the golden age of attribution. Adversaries today, we know, usually don't hide their tracks because they don't have to. They're not getting punished. We know they're not getting punished, right? Kevin Mandia, who is uh, the president of FireEye, was here speaking at our cyber boot camp, and he likened it to when the Chinese attack, it's like driving a tank through a cornfield, right? They leave all sorts of clues about, or digital fingerprints about uh, the fact that they're behind an attack. And why do they do this? Because it doesn't matter. Right? They don't fear getting punished. But now imagine a world where we start to punish cyber bad actors. What are they going to do in response? Well, that, they have an incentive now to start hiding what it is that they do. To try to make it look like a Chinese cyber breach is actually the result of the Russians. The Russians are going to make it look like the Iranians. The Iranians will make it look like the North Koreans, and so on. The more we punish, the more we incentivize those cyber bad actors to hide their tracks. And so so punishment may actually make the problem worse, not better. In the wild jungle of the internet, it's much easier for bad guys to hide than for good guys to hunt them. So all of this means that deterrence is unlikely to be the only solution, or it may not even be the best solution to the cyber threats that we confront. The landscape is complex and it's fast moving, and developing good policies is hard and it's getting harder. But we have to start by asking the right questions. What is an attack? Who threatens us most? Is deterrence possible? These questions are at least the most important beginning for us to have a better understanding of the threat and better policies to combat it. Let me stop there and take your questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.